Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grace Chapel. So good to be with you this morning. So amazing that we get to open God's Word like this and be filled together. One word for this morning, hope. We hope to be back in in-person worship next Sunday along with communion. We hope that our church family is doing well, that uh, people are healthy, and that if they're not, they're on the road to recovery. We hope that we're all being in a godly influence in the communities where God has placed each of us. We hope the economy of the United States will remain strong. We hope we'll get to be with family this Christmas. Hope. In what rests your hope? I mean, really. Isaiah 59, 19 and 20. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. For He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Hope. Every move we make, every step we take, every response that we give to the situations and the relationships in our lives is fueled by, is motivated by hope. Our life story, yours and mine, however long or short it's been to this point, is a hope story. We're always looking for hope. My, my happiest moments are hope moments. My Saddest moments are hope moments, too. They're about hopes that have been dashed. They're about hopes that have been disappointed. We're always looking for hope. We're always attaching the hope of our heart to something. And, and this hope that people in our world have is a, is a hope about maybe a particular object or, or maybe it's an expectation. We're always hoping in something. We're always asking for something to deliver something to us. And we tend to look for hope in all the wrong places. We're a walking country western song. We instinctively look for hope where it can't be found. And that's why hope for so many on this planet is disappointing. It's frustrating, and it's even confusing. We want things to give us hope that just can't deliver hope to us because they were never meant to. Don't you tend to find hope in the constant affirmation that you receive from the people in your life? I would say many of us do, even if we don't realize it. Just make me feel good about me, please. Isn't that why you and I gravitate towards people who are constantly giving us affirmation, who are always building us up, saying affirming things about us. Those are the people I want to be around. Who doesn't want their children, their grandchildren, their, their, their grandchildren, or their great-great-grandchildren to say out loud, you're the best dad, you're the best mom, you're the best grandfather or grandmother I could ever have. How many times is too many for you to hear that? We really do tend to attach ourselves to hope. But even those relationships, being what they are, will never deliver what we're asking them to deliver. Not consistently, 
not once and for all. We're always looking for more reaffirmation. So we're going to open our Bibles today to Isaiah chapter 59. It's where I read from the opening. Isaiah 59 is an enlightening, it's this eternal hope passage. It's so much so that because it's written in a moment of utter darkness, temporary darkness. Things are a mess in Israel. There's no justice, there's no peace, there's fear, there's oppression, there's even foreign invaders. I want you to imagine with me if you can, I know this is a big stretch for a lot of you, but pretend Canada invades Michigan. Okay, can, can, I, know, I know it's a stretch, but just play with me, all right? Canada invades Michigan, um, conquers Lansing, conquers Detroit. That's probably not all that hard to do. So you and I, as Michiganders, we start paying taxes to who? To Canada. It's really, really bad because we don't even get the benefits of free health care. We're paying for their free health care. All we have are raiders and squatters coming up from Ohio and Indiana taking advantage of our weaknesses. There's violence in the streets. There's massive poverty. It's a mess. And into that kind of a darkness, there comes a brilliant, shining hope. Because it's in the dark moments of our lives where true, real hope will be exposed. And our true, real hope will come through for us, or it will deeply disappoint us and prove to have been no real true hope at all. So here's the question for us to consider. When your life is hard, when it's difficult, when it's even confusing, you don't know which way to turn, and you're dealing with the unexpected, it just happened. When your story is not what you wish your story would be, Where do you run for hope? Who do you go to for comfort? Where do you hide for security? What is your daily functional hope? Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is answering a charge that his own children have leveled against him. And it's what often happens to you and I, too, all of us. When life isn't working, when we're suffering in some way, when the comfort and ease that we were often experiencing and enjoying is suddenly interrupted, is this sounding familiar? It's very tempting for us to bring God into the court of our own judgment and question His faithfulness, question His goodness, question His wisdom, question His love. It's very tempting to say, God, where are you? Where is this faithfulness, this grace, this love that you talk about and you've promised? I thought you said you would never forsake me. I thought you said you would answer my prayers, but they feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. And that's exactly what his people in the current crisis in Isaiah 59 were doing. And here's what's so devastating about when you and I go here. When we allow our heart to begin to question God's wisdom and God's goodness, we usually don't run to him for help. You don't go for help to someone who you've lost trust in, someone you've come to doubt. 
It's like when you're, you're using a particular detergent to clean your home, and for some reason, the company, probably to save money, changes the formula, and it's not as good as it once was. We've all been there. What do you do? You stop buying that detergent, and you go to another detergent to the degree that you and I convince ourselves that God has changed and that he's not as faithful, he's not really all that good to his promises, and that God is not effective in his love, and that God is not as near as we thought that he was, we quit running to him. We stop praying. We, we stop meditating on Scripture, and we run somewhere else. And God says here, no, no, no. Children, you've got it wrong. What's really going on and that you're seeing around you in these circumstances, it's not a sign that my arms are too short to reach you. Uh, What's going on is not a sign that my ears can't hear your prayers. I'm not the problem. Amos chapter 4. We went through the Minor Prophets uh, a couple years ago, and and Amos chapter 4 is essentially a poem. And it's a poem that has this ongoing, repeating refrain. And it goes like this. But you, this is God talking to us in poetry, but you have not returned to me. What God is saying is, you know, the reality is I've brought these difficulties. I've allowed these difficulties into your life in order to pry your hands to let go of the things that you're putting your hope in so that you will now trust in me, that you will see that I am the only place where you will find true hope, that these things will not satisfy you. Difficulties are not a sign of God's unfaithfulness and inattention. In fact, difficulties that come into our lives are a sign that he's near and he's available. Some people call God's discipline, call God's testing of our faith, uh, the tools of uncomfortable grace. Sometimes the grace of God takes us to uncomfortable places, puts us in uncomfortable positions. In, In this family that we call Grace Chapel, there are some who will be tempted to question God during the the COVID pandemic. There are are those who will be tempted to question God and tempted to doubt in his goodness um, as family members get sick. They'll be tempted to wonder if God hears prayers and answers them. This is a misplaced charge against God that we are all guilty at times of committing. And God follows it up with a divine accusation. And it's a brilliant diagnostic. I hope you see this, that God is the great physician. He sees and reveals things in us that we are blind to, completely blind to. Look at verse 2. But your iniquities, you want to know what's really going on, God says? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so so, so that he does not hear. You see, I like to think that my, my, my biggest, deepest problems in life are outside of me, not inside of me. Are you with me on that? They're, they're, they are problems that occur because of the circumstances, because of the situations that are beyond my control. They're, they're problems of location. If I could only move, I, everything would be better. Or they're, they're problems of relationships. If this person wasn't in my life, everything would be so much better. 
You see, I think that I'm one of the good guys. Do you not think that I'm one of the good guys? Please. Do you not think that you're one of the good guys as you're talking about life? And God says, no, no, no. Let me tell you what the problem is. You're the problem. I don't want to hear that. I'm just being honest with you. That the problem actually exists inside of every one of us. Paul tells us in Romans 3, verses 9 to 12, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. Who, how many? Yeah. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He says it a number of times. But doesn't it seem so comforting to say to yourself, I'm not the problem? Isn't that, we are, isn't that what we argue and defend as we're driving alone in the car or, or laying in bed at night and there's something going on with somebody at work or, or, or maybe at church or even in our family with relatives and, and, and we're going through the whole scenario in our mind and we're going, they said this, then I said that, and I said the right thing, but they shouldn't have said that. And, the, and we go, we're, we're defending ourselves, right, because we're the good guy. It alleviates, it, it, it helps pass the buck, it, it uh, takes the load off your back. Isn't that why there are some people who like protests? I know there's a legitimate protest, but come on now. We've seen all kinds of protests in America this past year, and we'll most likely see plenty more. You'll hardly find anyone. Okay, I, 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 you can Google it. Maybe you'll find somebody. If you do, send us the picture. I think it'll be interesting. But you'll hardly ever find somebody at a protest carrying a sign with an arrow pointing down that says, I'm the problem. I mean, I just don't think you're going to find it. Maybe you will. Because the reason you and I like to protest about life and what's going on is that we get to say what? You're the problem. And if you would only see things my way, everything would be okay. Think, me, think with me for a moment. At the base of all those things, that we consider problems, what do you find? People. We have dangerous neighborhoods. We all know that. There are places where you should not go alone. You should not even go in a large group. We have dangerous neighborhoods, but there is really no such thing as a dangerous neighborhood. There is no neighborhood that has ever done anything bad to you. There's no neighborhood that... Uh, uh, is, is, is that is going to hurt you. Neighborhoods are dangerous because the people who live in those neighborhoods do evil, violent, terrible things. And at the base of a bad neighborhood, what do you find? People. Philadelphia used to have this old-school Italian mayor, and he was a bit of a thug, but Frank Rizzo, he didn't understand the concept of, of political correctness. As a matter of fact, um, he was fundamentally politically incorrect all the time. Um, and he would have this Tuesday afternoon um, interview, and it was, uh, would be live, press conference. And it was just high comedy. And everybody would stop what they were doing at noon to listen to Frank Rizzo go off. But there was this one 
a young, noble reporter who asked Frank Rizzo what he was going to do about the street crime in Philadelphia. And he stood up and he said, the streets in Philadelphia don't commit any crime. It's all done by people. Next question. And he's right. Uh, at least on this one thing, he was right. There's no such thing as corrupt government. The institution itself is not a problem. The problem is the people in the government who use their power for personal gain and don't actually exercise the authority that they have been given and entrusted with for the welfare of all the citizens. You get to the bottom of corrupt government, and what do you find? You and I. And the minute you and I sit under God's accusation, the minute we realize what he's really saying here, it's a brilliant diagnostic, but wouldn't you expect that from our holy, awesome creator? We're the problem. And we've taken God's beautiful, glorious, wisely created institutions, and we've made a mess out of them. And that means you can't find any hope in a new location, in a, <clears throat> in a new um, place to hide. Because guess what you'll find there? People. You can't run to a new situation because guess what you'll find there? You can't run to a new relationship. You can't run to a new leader because guess what you'll find there? You'll never find consistent hope do you know why? Because it can't be found. It can only be given, and it can only be given by God. The problem is, there, is that there is something that lurks inside of me that is dark, and it's dangerous, and it lurks inside of you too. It kidnaps our thoughts, it diverts our desires. It distorts our words. It drives our behavior. And the prophet here uses three words for this thing. Isaiah uses the words iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity means moral uncleanness. I like to think that I'm pure, but I'm not pure. My motives are not always pure. My desires are not always pure. My purposes, my thoughts are not always pure. There is more moral uncleanness inside of me. Transgression. It's high-handed rebellion. It's, it's willingly. No one is twisting your arm, stepping over the boundaries that you know are there. You, they're absolutely laid out. You're not ignorant of them at all. You know they're there. It's the moment where you park in the no parking spot when you can clearly see the sign that says no parking, but you don't care. Transgression. If you snapped at your spouse or your kids this week, you didn't snap at them because you were ignorant that that was wrong. You lashed at that moment because you didn't give a rip that it was wrong. Let's be honest with ourselves. Because there was something that you wanted to express. There was something that you wanted to be done in a certain way, and it wasn't happening. Sin. Sin is falling short of the mark every time. It's pulling back the arrow with the bowstring as hard as you can. And when you let it go, it misses the target every time. So because there is iniquity and there is transgression and there is sin inside of me, 
I make a mess. You make a mess out of God's good creations. And you'll never receive the hope that God offers if you don't listen to and believe in God's accusation and own it. The accusation God makes is followed up by a confession. Look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men, dead men walking. We all growl like bears. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We, we hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. This is a description of people in America in 2020, like to the T. People who have completely lost their way. It's a description of when you're in that moment that you're so lost and all of a sudden, it's like someone adds to that lostness by turning off the lights in your life. And you're in the dark. Have you ever been in a dark room and you can't find the light switch? And you're, 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 you're feeling along the wall to, so, that, so that you don't walk into it. And trying to find, I, knew it, I know it's here somewhere. It was this side. It's not there. But you use the wall to keep you going in the right direction in the darkness. That's what he's describing here. When you and I have lost our way, when we're, when we're, when we're fumbling around, we're at this very significant moment of decision. And we're either going to point the finger or we're going to make the confession. And that's exactly what happens next. Verse 12. For our transgressions, are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, con conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. This is God. I accept it. I'm the problem. It's me. I confess. So this is really about coming to a place of hopelessness. This is, God, I've got a problem and I can't solve it. Hopelessness is the doorway to real hopefulness. And it's only when we give up all this horizontal hope that we've surrounded ourselves with, if I only had blank, then my life would be... Those are false hopes. And people in our world have made those hopes their Messiah. It's what we hope will give life peace, comfort, security that we're all seeking. And look at the brilliance of how this passage shines next, starting in the second half of verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. 
and then his own arm. Remember the one that they said was too short? And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Here's what God is saying. There is no horizontal place for hope to be found. None. No one. Nothing is able. No leader can give you this to give you hope that you're seeking. And in light of this current disaster that the nation is under and that we're under too, in light of all the lostness and the rebellion and the transgression and the iniquity and the sin, God doesn't turn his back. Did you see that? He doesn't walk away and he doesn't say, okay, I've had it, you guys are done, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to wipe you all out. He says, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Whenever you see that phrase in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord, that's one of the names for the Messiah. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the Christ. And God is saying, now that I've got you at this moment where I've wanted you to be, where you utterly have no other hope, I'm going to send you hope. And it's not going to be a situation. I'm not even going to change that probably. It won't be a human relationship. It won't even be a different location. It will be a person and his name is Jesus. And that's the Christmas story. This is our first Advent Sunday heading in that direction. The Christmas story is hope coming. And that's why the angels sang those glorious songs. That's why the wise men came to worship. That's why the shepherds were just blown away. Because hope had invaded the earth in the person of Jesus the Christ. And that promised hope, Jesus, would bring with him two things, it says here, justice and grace. Look at verses uh, 17 through 19. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment uh, to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. God is going to deal with evil. God is going to punish all wrong. Now, the words that are here in these graphic word pictures should bring us both comfort and terror. Because it's very clear what the prophet is saying, that this world is a moral place. And it's ruled by a holy God. And he takes sin seriously. Sin is evil. It's disastrous. It leads to death. And this holy God is saying, it's not okay for you to sin. It's not okay for you to transgress. It's not okay for you to have iniquity. Hey, as long as you're happy, I'm fine. You go ahead and do those things. He's never going to say that. No, this is a holy God who hates sin. He will not tolerate it. He will punish every sin. And the problem with us from time to time is that we don't see sin as sinfully as God sees sin. Sin doesn't always look evil to us. 
If you're a child and, and you're in the process of defying your parents and you're, you're, you're rebelling against them, and, you, and, 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 and to do that, you're doing something that you know they don't want you to do. You're not feeling the danger of sin at that moment. It doesn't seem evil. No, no, you're feeling the buzz off uh, temporary independence. By the way, it is temporary. Believe me, it is. And it's very clear here that God, who is absolutely, perfectly committed to justice, sin will be dealt with. But, but notice that there's also this amazing, in the same sentence, there's these, uh, this amazing life-giving comfort. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Pete, justice doesn't sound very comforting to me. Uh, what kind of pre-Christmas Advent message is this anyway? Well, here's the comfort. Would you really want to live in a world where there is no justice? Would you really want to live in a world that was ruled by someone who didn't care about justice, who didn't hate uh, evil, who was, who was incapable of hating evil, being angry with evil? God's righteous anger and His holy justice are the hope of the universe. He will not rest until every sin is defeated. He will not relent. He will not quit until every molecule of sin is sanitized out of every cell of every heart of all of his children. But he doesn't just come armed with justice. He comes armed with grace. Look at verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. A Redeemer. Redemption is a beautiful term. To redeem means to buy back. And God says, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to, to live a life on your behalf, the perfect life you could never live. And he's going to take your sin on himself and die the death that you deserve to die, that you should die. He's going to be your substitute. And he will die as a perfect sacrifice, something you couldn't do. And his death will satisfy what we've just read about God's justice, satisfaction. And then he's going to rise again, and he's going to conquer death so that he can give to you eternal life, not temporal existence. And now you can stand before a holy God as if you never sinned because of Jesus' death on the cross for you. And you can be unafraid of the coming wrath that is coming. And God will accept you because of Christ, and he will invite you into a personal, intimate relationship with him. That's redemption. Verses 16 through 20 are a prediction of the cross of Jesus Christ. 700 years before he was even born. And they're actually an announcement of the cross. See, we can't talk about the birth of Christ at Christmas without talking about Jesus' death on the cross. Because on the cross, the holy justice of God and the amazing grace of God meld together into one. And the only way you will ever receive true hope is to repent of all those places where you've tended to put your hope, a hope that was never intended to deliver anyway. In what rests your hope? 
I mean, really. We're going to be singing Christmas carols and songs for the next three to four weeks. Some of you started back in Thanksgiving. One of them goes like this. Yet in, thy, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, darkness and light, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. As we consider the birth of our Savior during this Christmas season, let's not put our hope in a situation. Let's not put our hope in a location. Let's not put our hope in an experience or even a particular gift. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we bow before you through the convicting power of your Holy Spirit as your word has been read. And Lord, we pray that it penetrates our hearts, not just to arouse us, to enlighten us, but to change and transform the way we will live this afternoon and this week and through the Christmas season, how we'll interact with the people that you're going to bring our way along the pathway that you have destined for us to walk so that, Lord, we can share and we can shine the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the words that we need as we communicate with people who need to hear from you to be invited to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We pray this in his most precious name, thanking you in advance for what you're going to do. Amen.